0: would invite you to take your Bibles or the red Bibles in the chairs around you, and to turn to the book of First John. First John. As you're doing that, let me give you a quick snapshot of uh, where we'll be going over the coming weeks. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be finishing up the book of First John next Sunday. And then on the 20th, we'll have a guest speaker, one of the, the Labrie speakers, Dick Kies, will be with us and bringing us God's Word on the 20th. Uh, the last Sunday in February, uh, Pastor Johnson will be preaching, and he will be looking at 2 John, the letter of Second John. And then the Sunday after that, we'll be looking at Third John. And then we'll be done with our series in the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd letters of John, and we will begin... Our study of the book of Jonah. So that's kind of where we're going. Uh, today we're looking at 1st John chapter 5 and verses 6 through 12 but I want you to put your finger there and actually turn to the very beginning of 1st John because I want us to read the very first verses as we see John as he's beginning to end his letter he really finishes with where he started almost as bookends in the letter there's a lot of similarity in what he says at the beginning and in the passage that we'll be considering today. So look first at 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now look at 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. For this is the testimony of God, that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and that this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we would pray that the very Spirit that is referenced here in these verses would be present right here, right now, where we are, opening our eyes, enabling us to understand what You want us to understand from this portion of Your Word. Help us to see Jesus, we pray, for we ask it in his name. Amen. When we lived in Atlanta, we lived on a street uh, that had a cul-de-sac at the end of it, a circle, and we were were one of the houses on that cul-de-sac. And uh, it was a unique situation in places where we've lived in that it was a very international cul-de-sac. There were people that were from all kinds of different countries there. And, And the people that lived in the house right next door to us were from Russia. Well, one afternoon, there was a knock at our house, and I went to the door and opened the door, and there were two federal marshals standing on the front porch. Now, this is not a usual occurrence at the Harper House, so it obviously was something quite concerning to me. And uh, they they addressed me by name and said that they uh, wanted to to talk with me. And uh, so we began to talk, and they began to ask questions about our neighbors. And it turns out that uh, the husband of the family apparently had ties with the Russian mafia. And so what they were coming to, uh, to, to our house to ask was, had we witnessed anything that was unusual? Had we, had we seen, had we, had we observed, had we witnessed anything that was out of the ordinary, something that would be of interest to these federal marshals? Now, we actually hadn't seen anything that I could tell them about that was uh, unusual, anything that would be uh, concerning. And so I told them that I didn't have any information for them. They handed me their cards with their information and their, their contact information, and they went on their way, and I never heard another thing about it. But here's the thing. They asked me, have you witnessed anything? Have you, have you seen anything out of the ordinary? Had I, had I heard anything which would give them proof of whatever their suspicions were? Now, I hadn't, and so I did, wasn't able to give them anything, but I, I'm pretty sure that if I had anything that I said I had witnessed, then it's probably pretty likely that they would have asked me to, to testify in some way, uh, to, to bring testimony against the, the neighbors and what I had seen and witnessed. Testimony, Witnessing, it is, it is what John is talking about in this passage today. Ten times in these seven verses, he uses the verb or the noun form of testify or testimony or witness. That's a lot of times in a short passage. And so it must mean that there's something important that John wants us to know about a testimony. So, today, what I want us to do is to look at four things. First of all, what is a testimony? Secondly, why we need one? Thirdly, what is the testimony that we have? And then lastly, how this testimony benefits us. So, first of all, what is a testimony? Well, I just mentioned to you that John uses the verb or the noun form of the word testimony ten times in these verses. It's actually the Greek word marturia. Marturia. It means to testify or a testimony. It means to bear witness, to show proof. It's actually where we get our word martyr from. And if you think about that, that makes sense because what is a martyr? A martyr is someone who testifies with their life about what they believe, even to the point of giving their life up, being killed for what they believe. They are, they are a witness to their faith. They are testifying to their faith. A testimony is something that attests to something. It is a confirmation, it is a validation, it is evidence, it is proof of something. And so notice what John is saying in these verses about what a testimony is. There is a testimony, he says, about Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Son of God. There is proof, there is witness, there is confirmation, there is validation of Jesus Christ. And he tells us in these verses that this is a testimony that comes from God himself. It is a testimony that is actually experienced in the world. And those who believe it have it living inside of them, he says. And it's also something that brings us benefits. That's what a testimony is. But I want you to notice that John is writing these words to get across to the people how important, how necessary this testimony is. Now, in order to see that, we need to remember the context of John's letter. If you remember back when we started looking at 1 John, we talked about the fact that John, as an older man, is writing this letter to a group of Christians, in, likely in the city of Ephesus. It was God's people, it was the church in Ephesus. And this church, this little gathering of God's people in this city, had gone through an incredible upheaval. False teachers, or as John refers to them, antichrists, have in, had infiltrated the church and had began to teach false teaching. So much so that some of the group had been confused and that it actually left the church with the false teachers. John was writing this letter to to encourage those who were left with the truth of God's grace. Remember what he said in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Children, that endearing term as he addresses the people who were left in the church. Children, it is the last hour, he says. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all not of us. They went out from us, he said. They, they were not of us. He's speaking about these false teachers and those who left with them. Now, we as we talked about when we started the letter, we don't know a lot of details about the specifics of the false teaching and how it was being played out in this particular context that John was writing to. But we do know bits and pieces of what potentially was going on. There was a man that lived in the area and lived during the same time that John was writing to these people, a man named Serenthus. And this man, Serenthus, denied that Jesus was God incarnate. He taught that Jesus was a man. He actually lived the, 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 uh, lived on the earth and he was a good man. He was a good model. He was a good teacher. But he was not the Christ. He was not God in the flesh. He was just a regular human man. But his teaching got a little more nuanced than that. He said that at his baptism, of Jesus' baptism, the Christ, the divine Christ descended upon Jesus so that during his life of ministry, he was fully God and fully man. But then as he was dying on the cross, just before he breathed his last breath, the Christ ascended again from Jesus. Cerinthus and his followers had issues with God dying on the cross. I think you can start to see the problem. Sin was something that had to be paid for only by a perfect sacrifice. And if Jesus was just a man, just like us, a sinner, just a regular human being, then dying on the cross would do nothing to secure the atonement and the payment of sin for God's people. If Jesus was not the Christ, if he was not the God-man, then his atoning sacrifice on the cross would not have accomplished the needed purpose. John was writing this letter in the context of that heresy that was being taught to the people. And notice what he says in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He is Jesus the Christ. He's already said that back in chapter 5. In verse one, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And at the end of verse five, he says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of God. He didn't just become the Christ at his baptism. So John is writing this letter. To remind them of the testimony, the proof of that truth being absolutely necessary for these people who were reading this letter in the first century to know that the false teachers were wrong. Jesus is the Christ. I would suggest to us brothers and sisters in Christ that it is also a needed testimony for us to believe today. Serenthus and his followers are long gone. You can't find the Serenthinian church these days, or the Serenthinian cult, but the ideas that were taught by Serenthius are still very much around today. Jesus was just a good person. Jesus was a model. He was a good example for us. He was a good teacher, but not God incarnate. Jesus was not the second person of the Trinity. He was not God in the flesh. He was not fully God and fully man. He was not the only atoning sacrifice for sin of the world such that if you don't believe it, you don't get to go to heaven. Those are the beliefs that are in our culture today. There are even entire church denominations that ironically teach that very tr- that very thing. And I would even suggest to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, that God's people who profess Jesus as fully God and fully man, sometimes we slip into thinking that He is less than who He said He was. How do we do that? When we don't obey what He said to do. If we truly believed that Jesus is the Christ, fully God, fully man, come in the flesh, we would do what He says or about or how about the times when we doubt what he said to us about that our sin is no longer it no longer has power over us or when we doubt what he said about the fact that the holy spirit is really living within us we need the testimony that John is talking about today just as much as his first century readers did and so what is the testimony that John says that we have I want you to notice he tells us several things about this testimony in these verses. The first thing that we can see is that it's an objective testimony. Look at what he says in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. He's telling us that this testimony of Jesus coming is an objective testimony. This is an unusual wording. It's, it doesn't sound familiar to our ears. It, it was a, it's a phrasing that is fairly unique to John, this idea that Jesus came by the water and the blood. He, almost, he wrote it almost feeling like the people that he was writing to knew what he was talking about. But this is not something that we're familiar with. But scholars and commentators agree on this point that it almost certainly is a reference to the baptism and the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus came by the water. He came and he was baptized. And as he was baptized, as his, as his public ministry was commissioned, the Father in heaven declared that Jesus indeed was his very son. Jesus was empowered to go accomplish the mission that he was sent to do. Jesus came to the, according to the blood. He came to die on a cross, to shed his blood on a cross. And notice, I think this all makes sense when we read again what it says, where John says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. In other words, he's addressing these heretics that were saying he only became the Christ at his baptism. No, he says, it wasn't just at his baptism. He is the Christ. He is the one who has come. He is the Christ at his incarnation. He is Christ at his baptism. He is Christ at his crucifixion when his blood was shed. What John's point here is, is this, that we have an objective historical proof or witness or testimony of Jesus the Christ. He came into this world. He was baptized. He was declared the very Son of God by his Father. He was commissioned for his work on the cross. He lived a life of perfect love and obedience to his Father. He paid in the full debt with God that was caused by our sin. By His water and His blood, His life, death, resurrection, they testify that He is who He said He was. So John's saying we have this objective testimony, this historical events that were witnessed by John and by so many others. But notice, it's not just an objective testimony that we have, it's also subjective. Look again at what he says at the end of verse 6 and end of verse 7 and 8. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. Not only is the testimony of Jesus Christ an objective one, as we know His his person and work here on this earth, but it's also subjective, it's also something that's experiential, it's something that's internal, The Holy Spirit testifies that Jesus is the Christ. And because the Spirit is truth, the testimony is true and right. And notice what he says in verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. What he's telling us here is that the Holy Spirit is at work in God's people to open our eyes that we might see and believe the truth of Jesus. That we are enabled to believe and trust what God's word says about the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's at work convincing us on the inside that indeed we are God's people. So the testimony that we have is from the Spirit. And from the water and from the blood, it's objective and historical, it's subjective and experiential. And notice that it's also according to the law of God. What John says here is significant. He says there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. John is referencing a very particular Old Testament law that we get in Deuteronomy chapter 19 that says that in order for something to be proven true, in order for something to be shown to be valid, there have to be two or three witnesses. And Jesus even applied that law in his own context as he was uh, confronted by the Pharisees who said, Jesus, you're saying all these things about yourself, about who you are, that you are the Christ, that you are the son of God, that you've come to to save sinners of their sins. And yet it's only you that are saying it and you don't have enough witnesses. So what you're saying doesn't count. And Jesus said Indeed, pointing to Deuteronomy chapter 19, your law says that if there are two or three witnesses that it's valid, and it's not just me, it's also my Father in heaven that attests to all these things being true. And John is going back to that Old Testament law here too as well. He says, here, Jesus, the one that we have the testimony of, we know that it's true because there are three witnesses, the Spirit and the water, in the blood. It's objective, it's subjective, it fulfills the law, but notice, most importantly, verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. John is using this lesser to greater argument here. He's saying that we will often accept the testimony of human beings. Two or three testimonies will come in a court case, for example, and will prove that something has happened or show evidence that something has happened. But John is saying if we would receive the testimony of men, How much more so should we accept the testimony of God himself? The testimony that we have of Jesus Christ is the testimony that God himself gives us. And because it's the testimony from God, brothers and sisters in Christ, we must humbly accept and believe it. And so the question is, do you have this testimony? Do you believe it? Do you believe this testimony of Jesus Christ? Because if you do, John tells us at the end of this passage that there are blessings and benefits that are yours as a result. Notice the contrast that we have in chapter uh, 5 at the end of the passage in verses 10 through 12. He has this contrast between those who believe and those who don't believe. He's making a pretty stark contrast here at the end of the passage. The testimony that is to be believed, when it's believed, it brings benefits. But notice he says it doesn't bring benefits unless you believe it. For the unbeliever, there are no benefits. For those who choose not to believe Jesus, in fact, look at what he says. It is in essence calling God a liar. God is the one who has given us the testimony of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus accomplished salvation on the cross. God has told us that it is true. And so John is saying, for those who would not believe it, they're saying that God is a liar. And as a result, the end of verse 12, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. For those who don't believe the testimony of Jesus Christ, there is no heaven. There is no forgiveness of sins. There is no declaration of righteousness. There is no eternal inheritance awaiting. There is no reconciliation with the supreme and sovereign creator of the universe. There is no life, he says. "Please." Hear what John is saying clearly. Believe the testimony. Believe in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Trust that it is true. And have faith in Jesus as the Christ. As the Son of God. Because when you believe the testimony, he says for the believer, there certainly is blessing and benefit. Look at what he says. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe has made God a liar. Verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. For those who believe the testimony, there is heaven. There is forgiveness of sins. There is declaration of righteousness. There is an eternal inheritance that is waiting. There is reconciliation with the sovereign creator of the universe. Now as we finish, I want you just to reflect with me for a few minutes on a few things about the benefit that we get from believing the testimony. The first is this. We get eternal life that is a gift that we are given. It's not a prize that we earn. Isn't that what John says? This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. We get these benefits of eternal life not by earning them, not by living a good enough life, not by having more good things in our life than bad things. This is what... Paul said in Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Brothers and sisters in Christ, because the life that we are given in the Son is a gift that is given and not a prize earned, it means that we never have to doubt that God loves or accepts us less. His love and acceptance of us is anchored in the testimony of Jesus Christ, His work that has been accomplished for us. It's not based on anything in us. It is based on His sovereign, eternal love. And because that is true, it should make God's people who believe the testimony to be the most humble people on the planet. How could we be arrogant? How could we be prideful when we are the ones who have been given a gift by God Himself? It should drive us not only to humility, it should also drive us to be people of incredible forgiveness to others. People who have wronged us, yet in such smaller ways than we have wronged the Creator, and yet He has forgiven us. How much more so should we forgive such smaller infractions against us? The first thing that we notice is that this life that we are given is a gift. It's not something that we earn. Secondly, I want you to notice that this benefit of eternal life is something that comes to us only through Jesus Christ. There is exclusivity in John's words here. This is the one, he says. This is he. This is the one who came by by water and blood, Jesus Christ. There is only one way to have life, and that is to have the Son, to believe in Jesus as the Christ and as the Son of God. If we believe Jesus is only some kind of moral teacher or example, that will not bring us life. No other philosophy or religion will bring us life. Not being virtuous and generous and kind and law-abiding and productive, those things can't bring us life. Life comes only through Jesus, he says. There is no other way. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to guard against slipping into the thinking that we get life through Jesus plus other things. Life comes to us not because of Jesus plus our obedience, or Jesus plus our faithfulness, or Jesus plus our generosity. The blessing and the benefit of eternal life, life with the Son, comes to us only by believing the testimony of Jesus Christ. Thirdly and lastly, I want you to see the benefit of eternal life for those who believe the testimony is a present possession. Look at what John says in verse 12. Whoever has the Son will get life sometime in the future. That's not what he says. Whoever has the Son has life. If you have Jesus, if you believe the testimony of Jesus Christ, then you have eternal life. And you have it now. It is a present possession. And of course, John is talking about heaven here with eternal life that is coming for us in the future. And we don't have that yet. But notice what he says. There is a sense in which we have the benefits of eternal life now. Not in the full reality that we will when Jesus returns, but yet truly we have the benefits of eternal life now. We can taste the benefits and the privileges of having life in the Son. Things like being under God's special care in government being protected and preserved every day of our lives, enjoying communion and fellowship with God's people, participating in the ordinary means of grace, the Word and the sacraments and prayer. These are are present benefits and privileges that are ours today because we have life in the Son. So if you're a child of God, let me just ask you, what are you doing to grow your understanding of the benefits and privileges that are yours today? And what are you doing to grow in your use and enjoyment of those benefits? If you have the sun, you have life now. So we should live like we do. Let me finish with this question again. Do you have this testimony? Do you believe this testimony? Because to have it and to believe it is to have life. And life everlasting. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to the Lord's Supper now, we pray that you would use this ordinary means of grace to help strengthen our belief and our commitment to the testimony that John is speaking about, the testimony that we need just as much as his readers in the first century. Help us, Father, to see our Savior, to see Jesus as the Christ, as the very Son of God. Help us to see and believe and strengthen us in our unbelief so that as we go out, it would actually make a difference in how we live our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.